So our reading is from the final chapter of the book of Amos, and you can find it on page 923 in the Church Bibles. Amos chapter 9, and we're starting to read at verse 1. Israel to be destroyed. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn, The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we come to the end um, 
of the tunnel that has been the Old Testament uh, book of Amos. It's been a quite sobering and dark journey at times, hasn't it? (laughs) It's not been easy reading. I don't know how you felt about it all. Um, I guess the way that you have viewed it and reflected on it um, depends quite a lot on your character or your personality, which reminds me of this little saying about being in a tunnel. I'm sure some of you have come across this little saying. Uh, You know, if you're in the tunnel, what, what does the pessimist see? A pessimist sees the dark tunnel. What does the optimist see? The optimist sees the, the light at the end of the tunnel. You heard that? What does the realist see? The realist sees the train coming towards him. And what does the train driver see? He sees three idiots on the track. No, Okay, I thought that was quite funny. Um, anyway, hopefully... <laughs> None of us are going to get mown down uh, by the freight train of God's judgment um, this morning. Because as we look at Amos 9, um, the tunnel is still dark. There's no doubt about it as we, as we spend time in this, this final chapter. Uh, but the light is getting brighter. And the light is not an oncoming train. The light is the light of God's mercy and his grace. So let's pray before we go any further. Father, we do ask that as we spend this final session looking at your word, as you have been um, faithful in these previous weeks, we ask again that you would speak to each one of us, that your spirit would do his work in our hearts, and that, Lord, you, uh, you would not allow any of us to leave without having been changed and touched by you. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now, when you came in uh, this morning, hopefully you were given a little A5 sheet. Um, If you weren't given an A5 sheet and you want one, uh, this just got the outline of where we're going, but also a little bit of a review of um, of the, the book of Amos. So the welcome team um, have got some. So if you want one, just um, I think they're going to come in and, uh, and, and uh, hand those out. So um, <laughs> if you want one, just put your hand up as, as we go. There's quite, quite a few that want some. <laughs> uh, so hopefully we'll get those distributed. They're coming now. So we'll give, give those guys a moment. Um, it falls to me then, as I say, to wrap up this, uh, this incredible Old Testament book this morning. Um, and I want to do this in a game of two halves, really, two halves. The first half, we're going to look at Amos 9. Um, but then the second half, just keep your hands up, by the way, because the team are coming now. So uh, if you want one of those, those sheets, they'll, they'll, they'll give you it. So first half, we'll look at Amos 9. Second half, we're going to look at, sort of review, if you like, what we've, what we've learned over these last, uh, well, since January, really. Uh, and we'll also ask the question, can we believe, um, can we believe, Amos's message. Now that might sound quite an ambitious plan. Forgive me. Uh, we'll try and get through it. Uh, try and get through it all. Um, but I'm hoping to, by doing that, that will be uh, a benefit for all of us. So keep your hands up. Uh, they're they're coming. They're coming round. Thanks for your patience. <laughs> There's enough. There should be enough for for, for most folk. While they're doing that, let me just say another thing by way of introduction. According to Jesus and according uh, to the Apostle Paul, um, there are three things that you can expect from, um, from, from the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, just let me just say those three things. Uh, firstly, Jesus says that actually all of the Old Testament 
points to himself. He says that in Luke 24. He's on the Emmaus Road um, and, and, and in, in his re- one of his resurrection appearances, and he explains how the whole of the Old Testament points to himself. That's the first thing. The second thing you can expect um, uh, from the Old Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he says that it serves as an example to warn us um, uh, uh, that sin leads to judgment. And then thirdly, in Romans 15, Paul also says that that the Old Testament was written for our encouragement and our hope. There's still a few on this side here, if there's there's any any left. So so we've got three things. Um, The Old Testament points to Jesus, it warns us about sin um, and judgment, and it gives us encouragement encouragement and hope. Um, Have we we run out? Are we we all out of the the sheets? If if, if not, we'll get some for you later, don't don't worry, and um, we'll... Uh, I can forward those on to you. So three things, okay? Amos 9 doesn't disappoint in, in, in these regards, but three things that you can say of the whole of the Old Testament. It points to Jesus. It warns us of, uh, of, of sin and judgment that is to come, but also the Old Testament gives us encouragement and hope, and hopefully we'll see all of those things in Amos 9 this morning. So let's get into the first half then. Uh, and... Uh, uh, if you've got your Bibles, open them up again, um, page 923. It's important that we, we follow this through. We read for ourselves what God's word says. So page 923, Amos 1 says this. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, and, and before we get into what he said, let's just take a moment to, to, to remind ourselves um, that once again, Amos is seeing the Lord in this vision and he's hearing. He's seeing and he's hearing what God says. And just in case you're new today uh, or you're visiting with us uh, or you haven't been um, uh, you know, able to, to join any of the Amos series thus far, let me just summarize briefly. Amos is, is an ordinary chap. He's not a professional prophet. He's not a professional clergyman, anything like that. He is living about eight centuries before Jesus. And he has been charged by God to warn the nations, but especially Israel. But he's been charged to warn the nations, especially Israel, of God's coming judgment. You'll remember that Israel was living in a time of prosperity, economic, militarily, political stability. But disaster was coming. Disaster was coming to this, 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 these people because they had forgotten who God was and how they were supposed to be living. And so as he comes to the end of his message from God, Amos once again reiterates a warning of God's judgment. Listen to what he says then in verse 1. He says, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Make no mistake, ignoring God will bring terrifying destruction. And there is no escape from it. We could say that it's access all areas for God. Not one part of creation will, be, will provide a hiding place from the creator. So there's no refuge in the depths of the grave, verse 2. There's no refuge in the heavens, that's also verse 2. Neither the highest point of the land, the top of Carmel, which we read in verse 3. Which, incidentally, if you remember back to to the first uh, chapter that we looked at, 
at the top of Carmel was, 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 was shaking, was, was, was withering um, at the roar of the lion. So, so neither the highest point of the land nor the depths of the ocean, we see in verse 3, are inaccessible to God. He has access all areas. There's nowhere to hide. And he's going to use as well, actually, whatever means it takes to bring about this judgment, whether that's nature. We see that represented by uh, the serpent in, in, in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. Or whether it's other human empires, we see that um, uh, represented by the the sword um, in verse 4. He will use whatever it takes. And then God says at the end of verse 4, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. This is hard, isn't it? This is really hard to hear. I struggle to to read it, I struggle to say it, but just like Amos' first audience, we have to hear this message. God's judgment is coming, and it is access all areas. Now you may be thinking, what on earth have they done to deserve this judgment? Well, one basic thing that they got wrong was this, They, they believed that they could be selfish, They believed that they could be unjust and exploit the poor and the needy. They believed that they could be idolatrous. They they believed they could do whatever they wanted sexually. And that somehow, by doing all those things, God would not mind. It's a big mistake. A big mistake. They had lost all consciousness that God was holy, that God was righteous, that God was a hater of of evil like many today they perhaps they domesticated God like many today they pushed him to the boundaries of their lives they recreated him in whatever image they wanted they, they thought of him in terms of a laid back benevolent Father Christmas type figure who would give them good gifts anyway just when they asked regardless of how well they behaved or any of that but they could not have been more wrong because God is no Father Christmas And they had forgotten, or they had rather they had chosen to ignore, the fundamental understanding of God's character that had been revealed to their forefathers in Moses' time, centuries earlier. Turn with me, if you will, to to Exodus 34. So this is page 93 in your Bibles. Page 93 will take you to Exodus 34. Um, And just want to share with you a couple of verses from Exodus 34. Because if you're ever looking for an accurate way to sum up God's character, then these uh, two verses are well worth remembering. It's Exodus 34, verses 6 and verses 7. And just a bit of context before we go into this. This is, this is God revealing his character after, after, the Israel, after he's rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, after all their backbiting, after all their moaning... After that golden calf incident where they had rebelled, this is what God says. God, we're told that God, this is verse 6 of 34, passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness. Rebellion and sin. Yet, 
He does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wow. What a description. That is a description of God's character par excellence. I mean, it's just fantastic. As I say, if you're looking for a a definition of that, this is the place to come to. But sadly, the people of Amos' day only appeared to remember the first part of that. If they'd have remembered the last bit of that revelation, surely they would have thought twice about their cruel oppression and mistreatment of others, their sexual immorality, their selfishness. What about us, I wonder? Are we in danger of making the same mistake? Emphasizing God's love and his forgiveness and his patience at the convenient expense of his justice and righteousness and judgment? We need to hear Amos' warning and remember the corrective that he offers his listeners. God is no Father Christmas type figure. No, he is our sovereign creator, completely in control of everything. So if you want to go back to Amos, page 923, go back to Amos and have a look at verse 5 of chapter 9. Page 923, verse 5, where he says this, The Lord, the Lord Almighty. Do you see the similarity with that bit in Exodus? The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts. And verse 6, he who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Amos here is affirming what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that this universe was created by God supernaturally, that it is sustained by him supernaturally, that nothing, that nothing happens in it that he does not ordain. Now, we might struggle to understand that, might we? But that doesn't mean that it's not true. And at this point, I need to make something else clear, because very often we can, we can say, can't we, that we believe that, that God is sovereign and he's in complete control. And yet when we say that, this question bubbles up in our minds. It bubbles up to the surface of our minds. Well, where does my free will fit into all of that? If God is sovereign and completely in control, what about my free will and my choices? And the answer to that question is that we have to hold both things in tension. We have to hold both God's sovereignty Uh, uh, on the one hand that God is completely in control 100% and on the other hand each of us are free agents and we are morally responsible for every decision that we make and again just because we can't fully understand that and grasp that again it doesn't mean that it's not true remember we are finite we are we are created not creator we are limited we only see now in part but God is infinite. He's unlimited. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. He is the creator. The life of Joseph, Joseph, who lived hundreds of years before Amos, is, is quite instructive in this regard for us, isn't it? If you remember, he was cruelly sold by his brothers into slavery, ends up in Egypt. He, be, he becomes the, the prime minister. And then he was able, after after a whole catalogue of things, he was able to help his family in a time of famine. 
And when he met again his brothers for the first time after they had treated him so horrendously, he was able to say to them, you can look this up in Genesis 50, he was able to say to them, look, basically, don't worry, what you intended for harm, God meant for good. I mean, there is the sovereignty and, 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 and free will all wrapped up in one, and yet we still can't quite get our heads around it. What, God, uh, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. So God's sovereignty does not destroy human freedom. But, and this is a big but in that sense, it also does not destroy human responsibility and guilt. God's righteous judgment is coming. He's no Father Christmas. He's got access all areas. Next we see that there is no preferential treatment. This is verses 7 through to 10. Look at verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? In other words, God says, look, you can't rely on being Jewish. That's not how it works. Today, we might say, you can't rely on being christened. That's not how it works. You can't rely on living in a supposedly Christian country, if that is even still a valid descriptor of our nation, or even if indeed it ever was a valid descriptor of our nation. Could say, you can't rely on just coming to church every Sunday and and thinking that's okay, but denying God as you do that in every other aspect of your week. There's no preferential treatment here. Which is not to say that there's no privilege. That's different. The Israelites were in an extremely privileged position as the people of God. They were supposed to show, they were supposed to bear witness to a different way of life as they lived out their covenantal relationship with God. And we, as followers of Jesus, are in a similar position. We are called to be lights to the world out there, reflecting the true light of the world as we do that, aren't we? And with that privilege comes greater responsibility. That doesn't sound like a a cheesy Spider-Man quote or something like that. But it does. With that privilege comes greater responsibility and... Greater judgment. But the only thing any of us can rely on in all of this is the mercy of God. And that's where Amos goes next. So look at uh, verse 8. Verse 8, he says this. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet, I will not totally destroy it. I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. My friends, here is a very wonderful light coming at the end of this dark tunnel. And having warned of God's judgment, Amos now gives an encouragement of God's mercy. As grim as everything has sounded so far, there is still a way out. Destruction need not be total. Only some people will die by the sword. Who are they? Who are the people that will die by the sword here? The answer is in, in verse 10. Who, who, who are the people that are going to die by the sword? Anyone? It's not rhetorical, this one. Who is it? 
Sinners. Yeah, the sinners. The sinners are going to die by the sword. But you say, John, we're all sinners. So, so that's not very reassuring, is it? True. But here, sinners has a quite a specific definition. Verse 10, if you look at verse 10, says the end of it, they are all those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. Can you hear the sort of, the attitude with which that is said? Disaster is not going to overtake us. Oh, no, no. In other words, they're the arrogant. They're the proud those who ignore God's holiness and righteousness and say, oh, do you know what, of course he's not really going to punish everyone or even anyone. And actually, you know, because of that we can just go on sinning regardless. It doesn't matter. What God is saying through Amos here, as he's been saying throughout the whole book, is that God will deal with sin. And it's designed to be a warning to encourage repentance. And it's so comforting, isn't it? To know that, that God does not take lightly the sins of a Hitler, or the sins of a Putin, or the sins of a Shipman. You know, we, we take comfort in that, that wrong will be sorted out. Any murderer, any abuser, any exploiter, we take comfort that, that, that justice will one day be served. But that's not really Amos's focus here. He's warning that God's judgment will righteously fall on everyone unless we turn to him in repentance and unless we walk towards the light of his mercy that he's extending towards us. Because if we do, there is a wonderful future that awaits. A wonderful future. Take a look at verse 11. He says, In that day I will restore I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places. Restore its ruins. And then look at verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Oh, what a wonderful vision. What a wonderful vision. A glorious picture. Perpetual provision here. I don't know if you pick this up. The people are reaping and sowing at the same time. So fertile is the ground that there's no need for seasons. It's just, it just keeps on coming. They're working and, 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 and it just keeps coming. It's a picture of complete blessing, of provision, of satisfaction as this new wine literally flows and drips down from the hills. What a blessing that is. A wonderful future awaits all those who heed the warning and repent. So this is Amos 9 in a nutshell. <laughs> he is warning us again about God's judgment. And there is much to warn, isn't there, in this dark tunnel. There's much to warn. But he is also encouraging us with God's mercy. That's part one. That's part one. We're coming to the end of, of Amos. And, and, and I don't know about you, but I, but I have found this, this series in, in Amos so helpful, uh, both as a preacher, uh, as I've been preparing, uh, but also as a, as a listener, as I've sat and listened to, to the other preachers. We're, we're so blessed to have such uh, faithful preachers bringing us God's word. And by way of concluding, though, I thought it would be helpful to ask two questions. What have we learned 
over these last three, week, uh, three months? And can we believe it? What have we learned and can we believe it? So on the back of the handout, for those who've got one, uh, you'll see those two questions, uh, that they're there. Uh, I've listed some helpful reminders uh, that, that, I, that I've sort of picked up. You can take away, you can keep those. I've also left space. Uh, the, there may have been some things that, that, that the Lord has laid on your heart over the last three, um, uh, three months. And you know what? It's so helpful to write those things down. I would encourage you, it's a good practice to have. You don't have to write as you come and listen to sermons week by week. But I don't know about you, I am so prone to forget. Unless I write something down and I just remember it, just a word or a phrase, it helps me to go back and, and, and to review it. So I would uh, encourage you along those, along those lines. So here we go. What have we learned since January? Here are my suggestions, okay? Uh, firstly, I think that we have learned that God uses unlikely people to be his messengers. These are going to come up here, by the way, uh, without the Cantonese um, uh, 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 translation, but they are on the sheet. Um, So if you need that, it's on the sheet. First thing, God uses unlikely people to be his messengers. Amos, as I said, wasn't a professional clergyman. He was an ordinary man. Do you remember what he did? He was a shepherd and he sort of tended fig trees. He's a businessman. But the Lord called him and gave him an extraordinary message. Guess what? (laughs) And I hate to break it to you. Well, I don't. But (laughs) you and I are ordinary people. And the Lord uh, has given us the quite extraordinary message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord uses ordinary people to be his messengers. We've learned that, haven't we? Secondly, don't ignore the roar. Remember that? God's wrath is coming. I mean, this has been the prevalent narrative throughout, hasn't it? Ever since that second verse of the book. And look, we know it's been difficult, but if you haven't heard this message as a roar, you can be absolutely sure that you, prob- well, that you haven't understood the message at all if you're not hearing this, this message as a roar. It's hard. But the Lord roars judgment from Zion. We are not to ignore that. Don't ignore the roar. That's the second thing. Third, I think we've learned. The Lord holds everyone to account. Do you remember all the nations are under God's rule? It's not just Israel and Judah. I mean, all the nations come, come in for, for, for his judgment. They're called to give an account. One day, everyone will be called to give an account for all of their actions before their creator. Fourthly, Greater blessing calls for greater responsibility. Privilege, being born Jewish, being born into a Christian family, it's not going to help anybody. But it does come with greater responsibility. As Jesus himself put it, to to whom much has been given, much will be expected. Greater blessing calls for greater responsibility. Here's another, another one, number five. God expects true, faithful worship from his people. Israel could put on quite the show when it came to ritualistic worship. But in reality, their hearts were far from God. They ignored his word. They followed their idols. They exploited and oppressed others. They misused misused God's great gift of sex. They suppressed the truth. Friends, you cannot worship God on the Sabbath and do all those other things throughout the rest of the week. That is not true faithful worship. 
Furthermore, it's impossible to worship God without in some way being concerned for justice, for social action out there, if you like. As James puts it, it's simply not good enough to say that we have faith without it bursting into life, uh, into a life of, of good deeds and, 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 and action and justice and concern for others. God expects true faithful worship from his people seven days a week. Six, self-indulgence, self-reliance. Doing that now may lead to imminent judgment now as well. God's patience may well run out in the here and now. It did for Israel. And persistent sin may well lead to consequences in this life, let alone in the eternal life to come. So seventh, don't wait till it's too late. Do you remember that? God's message of judgment is also a message of grace. And right now, in his mercy, it's not too late to change, to turn from your self-made religion and walk towards the grace of his light. One day it will be too late, but right now we're still enjoying God's patience. Why? Because as 2 Peter puts it, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Don't forget that, but don't wait till it's too late. And then finally, eighth, one day God will restore, he will repair, he will renew people from all nations who put their trust in him. Mercifully, even Israel's punishment through destruction and exile is not the end of the story. Amos testifies that one day people from all nations that bear his name, that's verse 12 of chapter 9, they will be brought together in a, in a rebuilt and a restored land, never to be uprooted again. So there you go. There's, there's eight things I have from these last three months that, 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 have, that have stuck out to me. Uh, maybe you have a point nine or a point ten that you need to fill in personally yourself, and I'd encourage you to do that so that you can remember what the Lord has been teaching you through this series. But I want to close by asking one final very important question, and that's this. Can we believe it? If that's what we're learning, can we believe the message of Amos? I'm sure it won't surprise you to to hear that I think the answer is yes, we can believe it. But let me give you a few reasons why I think we should have confidence Firstly, look at the history. Look at the history. Amos's prediction of God's judgment of Israel came true in about 722 BC when she was overrun by the Assyrians. Judah lasted another 120 years or so, defeated by the Babylonians in about 597 BC. And Jerusalem was destroyed 10 years later. Then, after that, after, after that period of, of exile, there's a remnant that return. They do start to rebuild. They do start to restore the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem. So ancient history shows Amos to be right, to be trustworthy. So look at past fulfillment. Look at the history. But secondly, look at the cross of Christ. Because as we said at the start, that's where all of the Old Testament is pointing to. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. 
And Amos has been stressing the reality of what? The reality of God's wrath. The reality of God's anger. And when you realise that on the cross, Jesus is engaging with God's righteous anger on our behalf, oh boy, it starts to make sense, doesn't it? Right there, on the cross of Calvary, you have God in his anger remembering mercy. Right there. Because Christ, God's only son, died that excruciating death for you and for me to take away that punishment, the eternal punishment that we deserve. For the punishment that we deserve for, for all those sins that Amos has been highlighting. But don't just look back. And just look at the cross of Christ to see that and know that it's true. Also look at the present. Be honest with yourselves and look at the present and appreciate Amos's 21st century relevance. Because God's anger is not some primitive religious idea that 21st century, sophisticated 21st century people have somehow kind of grown out of and it's, it's all okay. No, God's anger is real. And How we behave when we ignore God matters. Over the last few weeks, the Holy Spirit has been doing his work in me. I'm confident he's been doing it in you too. Showing us how the principles at play in Amos aren't confined to just one part of the world at one particular point in history. No, Amos has 21st century relevance right here in Hartford. Maybe it's in how we fail to use our time and money to work against oppression and injustice and exploitation and help those trapped in such circumstances. That's a challenge, isn't it? Maybe it's in terms of our own hypocrisy and and heresy in the church, individually. I'm also thinking corporately. Maybe it's in terms of our own sexual immorality as we ignore the God-given boundaries for sex. Friends, if we're honest, we've committed these sins that Amos has been highlighting to a greater or lesser extent. All of us have. And none of us escaped Jesus' analysis of the law when he said, what did he say? You've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, whoever gets angry, whoever insults his brother, will be liable to the same judgment You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who even looks at someone else with lust in his heart, as good as does it. Folks, it's hard to admit, but Amos' contemporary relevance is evidence his message was true and remains true today. It might be hard, but we need to be able to apply Amos' warnings to ourselves, and sometimes this is harder, not just the warnings, but also apply his encouragements too. The good news is that those promises in the last few verses of chapter 9 can be applied to us today as we see how they began to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they will one day totally be fulfilled in him. So, finally, don't just look at the past. Don't just look at the cross of Christ. Don't just look at the present. We've got to do all those three things. Finally, look to the future. 
Look to the future. God is a promise keeper. Look to future fulfillment. Verse 11 of chapter 9 refers to uh, that day. Verse 13 says the days are coming. And living this side of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, we can now see how that refers to a time when God will fulfill his promise completely. And when he will restore everything, he will bring it to perfection in the new creation. But first what happens? Christ returns. We look to the future. We look, this is what we remember in in our communion that we're going to share uh, shortly. We look back. And we look forward. We look to the point when Christ will return. When then, then will come. When He comes, then will come the final judgment for all. Everyone will stand and be judged, and everyone will have one of two destinies. It will either be everlasting death in that place that is commonly referred to as hell, or it will be everlasting life in the place that is commonly referred to as heaven, that we know where it is where God is with him, reunited, restored, renewed with him, in that new heaven and the new earth. And I've got to ask St. John's this morning, do you believe that? I've got to ask if you're watching online at home, do you believe that? Does it make a difference? Don't wait until it's too late. Don't ignore the roar. And don't miss God's mercy. Now is the time for salvation through trusting and then obeying Jesus. May God, in his wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blessing of having your word. We thank you for the enduring relevance of your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work among each one of us. Lord, we want to grow to be more like you. We want to love you more. And we want to be more faithful in how we worship you every day of the week. Father, help us not to take the issue of your judgment lightly. But neither, Lord, let us forget the wonder and the joy of the mercy and grace that you have poured out on us. Father, please would you equip each one of us here to keep living and working faithfully for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.